All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series, produced in partnership with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening and welcome to Landmark Cases. Tonight we are going to be looking at Yik Wo v. Hopkins. It's an 1886 case in which the Supreme Court ruled that the 14th Amendment's equal protection guarantees apply not just to citizens, but non-citizens. For the next 90 minutes, we'll learn more about what led to this case and what the effect of its decision has been on American society. Let me introduce our two guests who will be at the table to help us understand all this. May Nye is a historian and professor of Asian American Studies at Columbia University. She's the author of two books, Impossible Subjects and The Lucky Ones, and uh, she will be helping us understand all of the issues around Chinese immigration and the Chinese Exclusion Act in the late 19th century. Josh Blackman is with us, associate law professor at South Texas College of Law. He's the founder and president of the Harlan Institute, which develops constitutional law curriculum for high school students. Josh, welcome to C-SPAN. Thank you. So as we start here, I'm going to ask you to give us just the most basic facts about this case. Yikwo was decided in 1886, so roughly 18 years after the 14th Amendment was ratified. In this case, California enacted a law that required people with laundromats and wooden buildings to apply for a permit. Now, there's no criteria of when a permit should be granted. As it turned out, almost all the people who applied that were Chinese were denied permits, but all the people who were white and applied for permits got them. This was a criminal offense, and Mr. Li Yik was actually imprisoned because of his failure to pay a fine. This case was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court held that this was unconstitutional. They found that the standards by which these permits were denied were completely arbitrary, and that it was implemented with, quote, an evil eye and an unequal hand. And as a result, it violated the 14th Amendment. And this was the first major case after the 14th Amendment's ratification that applied this provision to non-citizens and found that a state law violated those laws. And it has implications for us today. Later on in the program, you're going to tell us about some very big recent cases that use Yikwo as case law. What's one, for instance? So one of the most famous recent decisions was the Guantanamo cases, Boumediene, which stands for the proposition that even aliens, non-citizens held at Guantanamo Bay, do have some protections under our Constitution. We're going to be learning a lot about the 14th Amendment during this series. It's the 150th anniversary of the amendment, and a number of the cases that we've picked for this season have uh, the 14th Amendment as their, the case law, the constitutional provision that's being examined. Let's look at just a little bit of it concerning the Yik Wo case. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. But later on it says, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. 
nor deny to any person, and that's the critical phrase here, within its jurisdiction, the equal protection of the laws. May Nye, why is this a landmark case? Well, you know, a lot of people just assume that the 14th Amendment applies to citizens, but by saying it applies to persons, it means that every person living territorially in the United States is protected by the Constitution, and that's huge because it, that really is an equal rights provision. Well, May Nye, we're going to learn from you about Chinese immigration in the late 19th century. What uh, was the impetus for so many Chinese coming to the west coast of the U.S.? Large numbers of Chinese begin coming to California in the 1850s, and they come for the California gold rush. They come for the same reason that everybody else is showing up in California, people from the eastern United States, from the southern United States, people from Mexico, from Chile, from Europe, from the, uh, from the British Isles. Hundreds of thousands of people are showing up in California, and it includes the Chinese. So they're not alone uh, in coming, and they're coming really for the same reasons that everybody else is. They're trying to see if they can get their lucky strike. And what kinds of numbers are we talking about over the, the last couple of decades of the 19th century? Well, in the 1850s, there's probably upwards of 20,000 Chinese who come. Um, it's not a huge number compared to the overall population, but Chinese comprise about 20% of the mining population. So, um, and by the mid-1850s, they're the largest non-white group in the mining districts. And what other kinds of work did they do, or would they find? Well, you know, Chinese were received, I think, in the gold fields um, with some ambivalence. You know, not there wasn't racial conflict everywhere. People worked side by side um, and got along. But there was also conflict that was born out of competition. And the easiest way to compete with somebody else is to hurl some kind of racial slur at them, that they don't belong there, they're not Americans, uh, etc. Um, so many Chinese were, um, their claims were jumped, they were attacked. Uh, local districts passed laws saying that Chinese could not have first ownership of a claim in those districts. So there were attempts to drive the Chinese off, off of the gold fields. But they let them back in, kind of you could say through the side door, to do jobs in the small mining towns that the miners themselves didn't want to do. Uh, typically, it was cooking food and washing clothes. Those were uh, considered women's jobs, domestic work. And there were very few women in the gold fields in the, in the first decades. It was mostly men. So that's how Chinese came to work in those occupations. And when the U.S. embarked on the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, how did Chinese laborers fit, in, laborers fit into that? Well, when the railroad starts to be built in the late 1860s, a lot of the uh, surface mines are beginning to be depleted, so both whites and Chinese are out of work. Um, and Chinese are, are hired to work on the railroad in part because the, the railroad companies think they're actually better workers than white former white miners who don't really take to labor discipline. Um, they drink, they, they walk off the job, and things like this. So the Chinese become a preferred labor force for the railroad, and they include, as I said, former miners, but they also recruit workers in China to come over and work on the railroad. So when we get to the 1880s, which is when this case begins to percolate, uh, what's the, the size of the Chinese population, especially in Northern California, San Francisco area? By, the eight, by 1880, there's probably about 100,000 Chinese in the state of California. Um, and they're about 10% of the state population, but 20 to 25% of the 
working population because the Chinese tend to be working age men and, and most of them don't bring families to this country. And what is life like for them? Well, it's hard. You know, they work hard. There's a lot of discrimination. Um, in San Francisco Chinatown, uh, they work in not just restaurants and laundries, but they work in uh, woolen mills. They have jobs in uh, for some large companies. Um, they do track work. They do infrastructural work. Um, but they come under increased attack by white working men or whites who fancy themselves to be working men. Some of them aren't really workers. They're acting as though they're workers to say that the Chinese are taking jobs away from whites. So there's a lot of violence um, against Chinese. There are mobs that roam the streets, burn down Chinese homes, attack people on the streets, mobs of kids who will just throw stones at random people walking by. It's a pretty ugly scene. For the most part, did the Chinese workers who come assimilate at all, or did they cluster together? Do you know about their English language skills and whether or not they really work to become part of society? Well, they, yes and no. I would say um, some of them do try to learn English. Um, there are some schools that are set up in San Francisco Chinatown to teach English, and the students are mostly young adult men. Uh, because they want to get along. They want to be able to do business. They want to be able to talk to their neighbors. So there are Chinese who, who learn English. And those classes are mostly given by missionaries who see teaching the Bible as a way to um, assimilate Chinese. Um, I would say that they don't all become Christians, but they do try to learn English. Um, but the, the difference with Chinese immigration is that Chinese custom is for men to go abroad and for the wife to stay at home. So they don't, as a rule, bring their families over here. And then once they get here, it's so, life is so hard and it's so violent that who would want to bring your wife over to a situation like that? Josh Blackman, most uh, high school students have heard of Chinese exclusion laws. What are they? So these were a series of laws enacted in the 1880s that placed significant limitations and eventually prohibitions on the immigration of people from <coughs> China to the United States. And these laws also put limits on Chinese people inside the United States, such that if they left, there were certain difficulties to reenter. As well, as long as they stayed here, they had to obtain these certifications, these, these papers, basically, that had to be carried upon them at all times to make sure that they were lawfully in this country. Uh, so it was an entire scheme that began in the 1880s and really lasted until the 1960s that limited immigration from China and put limits on how Chinese people could exist within the United States. So our case, again, is the China, uh, San Francisco Board of Supervisors and their regulation about laundries. Would you explain how uh, the Chinese became so involved in the laundry business in San Francisco? Well, as I said, they started in the gold mining towns um, doing wash for people, um, and it carried over into the cities. Um, there were many Chinese laundries. Uh, there were whites that owned laundries, too. Chinese did not uh, run all of them. Um, but they were not all in Chinatown. They were all over the city. They tended to set up a laundry in a neighborhood where it would be convenient for people to use it. So Yikuo's laundry, for example, Yikuo Laundry was not in Chinatown. It was at 3rd and Harrison, which is south of Market Street. 
In uh, the years of this case, there were 320 laundries operating in the city of San Francisco. And uh, so the law, the regulation or the law that the San Francisco board in place did what to the laundries? What, what did it say that was responsible? Well, it said, the, the law said that um, all new laundries had to be constructed out of brick or stone. Um, but if you, existing laundries, which were made out of wood, which they all were, practically all were, um, could only continue to operate if they got a permit from the city. And this is what led to uh, this charade, really, where they approved all the permit applications that white people made, save for one, and they denied all the Chinese. So, in a way, this is not really about uh, fire safety. It was one of uh, quite a number of municipal ordinances that were passed to harass the Chinese. If we make life so miserable for them, if we make it impossible for them to earn a living, maybe they, they will leave. So enter Lee Yick, uh, who is one of the proprietors of, of a laundry in San Francisco. In fact, he'd been running it for 20 years. What more can you tell us about him? So in fact, you said it correctly. His name was not Yick Wo, it was Lee Yick. Yick Wo was the name of the laundromat. In fact, when the original case was filed, no one bothered fixing the fact they didn't even get the guy's name right, which probably showed how much they cared for the uh, people living in that jurisdiction. Um, he was a laundromat owner, and he was uh, he refused to uh, pay a fine of ten dollars because he was denied this permit. Um, he was then sentenced to a term in prison because he wouldn't pay this fine. Uh, he filed what's called a writ of habeas corpus to try to get himself freed. Um, the California Supreme Court rejected his appeal, and then it went to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the U.S. Supreme Court reversed and said, "You have to let Mr. Lee Yick go free." Uh, because this California law is completely arbitrary, and it deprives him of his rights under the 14th Amendment. He was representing a, a number of Chinese laundry people. He, does, he really took the, the case on, but in fact there were a group of people protesting this. When I thought about this at the time, these are people who are not in their home country, and not in a country where they have the same rule of law, and yet they chose a legal path to protest. I'd like to have both of you comment about really what that means about their confidence in the American system. The Chinese were very savvy. They were organized, and they knew the laws of the country they were living in. It may not have been the laws from their own country, but they knew they were living in a foreign country, and they, they wanted to play by the rules, so they knew the laws. Mr. Lee, uh, for 22 years when he ran that laundry, he was duly licensed. He had, he had his laundry inspected every year, according to the law. They, they know the rules. They learn the rules, and they want to play by the rules. So um, now this case was not a random case. It was a test case. The Chinese were organized, just like the NAACP bring, brought test cases like Brown and other cases to test the constitutionality of laws that they believe are discriminatory. The Chinese also brought test cases. And they were uh, well organized. They were backed by uh, an organization called the Chinese Six Companies, which was uh, a coalition of the merchant leaders of the community that represented Chinese according to their home district, right? These are like mutual aid associations that all immigrants have based on their hometowns. Um, well, the Chinese, uh, the leaders were, had, had money. Uh, they also were supported by the Chinese consul, 
which also supported these cases. So they challenged these courses, cases in, in the courts. And they also did that because they did not have the vote. The exclusion laws said that Chinese could not naturalize as citizens. They had no political muscle whatsoever because they could not elect people to Congress. So they used the courts as their strategy. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. The case bears also the name Hopkins. Who was Hopkins? Hopkins was the sheriff at issue who, uh, uh, who's responsible for enforcing the fire law. Not, not too much is known about him. Um, I think May raises a very fair point. Um, there were several cases brought by these Chinese immigrants challenging these various policies, and they basically lost them all. Um, Yik Wo was one of the few cases that actually ruled in favor of the Chinese immigrant. So in this sense, it was a very smart test case because it wasn't testing the power of Congress to deny entry. It wasn't testing the power of Congress to deport people. It was testing the power of the state to deprive someone of a property interest, a liberty interest. What was at issue? These were small business owners who had a lawful business, wasn't bothering anyone, they were safe, and this arbitrary regime was put in their place. So this was actually an argument that would appeal to the fairly conservative Supreme Court, that there's a liberty interest in having a right to pursue an honest living. And that is where they actually prevailed. The other cases, they all lost. Well, on to the Supreme Court. Uh, at the time that the case came to the court, Grover Cleveland was president of the United States. But the Supreme Court itself looked very much like it did in our last case, the civil rights cases. The chief justice was Morrison Waite, who had been nominated by Ulysses S. Grant. And the associate justices of the Supreme Court were all Republicans except for one. They were Samuel Freeman Miller, a Lincoln appointee, Stephen Johnson Field, also Lincoln. And he served the second longest tenure of any justice on the Supreme Court, 1863 to 1897. William Burnham Woods, a Grant appointee, Joseph Bradley, a Grant appointee, Horace Gray, an Arthur appointee, Stanley Matthews, who wrote the decision in this case, a Garfield appointee, John Marshall Harlan, uh, a Hayes appointee, and the Johnson Democrat appointee was Samuel Blatchford. What should we know about this court in general? So, as a whole, in the civil rights cases, the court was fairly consistent that Congress lacked the power to provide additional protections for the freedmen, freed African Americans. And that case was one dissenter, John Marshall Harlan, who said that laws discriminating and private businesses discriminating against the freedmen were badges and incidents of slavery. And he thought that the 13th and the 14th Amendments prohibited this form of racial segregation against African-Americans. Notice Justice Harlan did not dissent in, I'm sorry, he did not write anything separately in Yik Wo. A few years later in Plessy v. Ferguson, uh, 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 Justice Harlan again dissented, arguing that exclusionary laws, that separate but equal, is unconstitutional. But he had a very famous part of his opinion where he said, while we're able to give protections for the freedmen, there is a people, a race very different than ours, and that is Chinese people. So Harlan, who was very much progressive with respect to equality for African Americans, uh, didn't seem to feel quite the same way about Chinese people. So on this court, there wasn't much of a friend for racial equality for people from China, yet this decision was a unanimous judgment in favor of Mr. Li Yik. So what did the arguments um, on the side of the city of San Francisco, what were they all about? Well, the city tried to argue that these Chinese laundries were unsafe. There were efforts to tie it to the opium industry, which was fairly prevalent back then. Um, these were not credible arguments because the, the legislation at issue didn't actually determine if the laundry mats were safe. That is, 
all the white laundry owners were having the exact same wooden structures as the Chinese laundry owners. And there wasn't any meaningful attempt to say why these were safe and why these were unsafe. This was what we call in the law a pretext, right? This was class legislation designed to protect a favored group and not a law actually premised on health and safety concerns. Here's just a little bit of uh, Justice Matthews' decision. It was a unanimous decision. He wrote it on behalf of the entire court, and here's what, uh, some of what he wrote. No reason for it is shown, and the conclusion cannot be resisted that no reason for it exists except hostility to the race and nationality to which the petitioners belong, and which in the eye of the law is not justified. The discrimination is therefore illegal, and the public administration which enforces it is a denial of the equal protection of the laws and a violation of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. And more of that is uh, discriminatory enforcement. Though the law itself be fair on its face and impartial in its appearance, yet if it is applied and administered by public authority with an evil eye and an unequal hand, uh, so as practically to make unjust and illegal discriminations between persons in similar circumstances material to their rights, the denial of equal justice is still within the prohibition of the Constitution. So this case was decided at the very beginning of what's often called the progressive era. Um, before this era, states usually had a laissez-faire approach to economics. They would let businesses do what they wish. But during this time, you had this progressive movement to regulate health, safety, welfare legislation. And the biggest opposition to this era were the courts, both state courts and federal courts, which in the 1890s and early 1900s, courts began to find various pieces of economic legislation unconstitutional that deprive people of their property or liberty interests without due process of law. This became known as substantive due process many decades later. Um, Yik Wo, if you read it this way, fits well within that chronology in that it was you had a business owner who was being arbitrarily denied the right to continue a business that he had run for two decades. Um, if you try to read it as a racial equality case, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Only a few years later, you had Plessy, you had uh, 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 and a lot of other cases that looked away at blatant racial discrimination, right? If you have, if, if the court's striking down a law based on an evil eye, how can they pull something which is actually legitimately separate? Uh, so I think the economic liberty approach helps to fit this case in with the broader era, although it was a fairly early on opinion in this, in this movement. Um, so did life change for the Chinese immigrants in San Francisco after this? No, it got worse, actually, um, notwithstanding the decision in Yik Wo, um, because with the exclusion laws being passed in 1882, um, it didn't end there. There was actually an uptick of violence against Chinese because the racists and the nativists wanted the Chinese thrown out of the country. So there was the worst violence against Chinese in the 19th century actually happened in the 1880s. There were massacres. The most famous was in Rock Springs, Wyoming in 1885, where nearly 30 Chinese were killed, um, uh, people who worked in a coal mine, 75 houses were burned down, um, the mob mutilated bodies and tortured them. It was just absolutely horrific. But all over the West Coast, there were lynchings, there were mobs that drove people out of town, you know, sunset resolutions, get out of town by sunset. There were uh, burnings in Chinatowns, people uh, attacked everywhere. So things got a lot worse uh, before they got better. And did uh, the law help to protect them at all? Uh, were any of these people prosecuted for these acts that they committed against the Chinese? 
occasionally there would be arrests, but in general they were not uh, prosecuted. In the Rock Springs um, case that I just mentioned, uh, there were whites who were arrested. Well, first they had a very hard time arresting anybody because nobody would uh, be a witness to say, you know, who were, who were the suspects. But they, uh, nobody was ever convicted in that case. Specifically, do you know what happened to the Chinese laundries, since they were the heart of this? Were they able to continue their business? They did continue. They did continue. And Chinese laundries uh, sprung up all over the country. New York City had a lot of Chinese laundries in the early 20th century. So, Josh, as you told us, the, the, from a legal perspective, more laws kept piling up uh, that mm -hmm. would... Uh, try to in insulate the white majority public from the effects of Chinese immigration. On, uh, and you made reference to this case, but uh, the Geary Act was the one that was uh, was examined in the Feng Yu Ting case in 1893. Mm. Here's a little bit of what the, the Geary Act did in 1892. Expanded restrictions on Chinese immigrants, required them to carry resident permits. Chinese immigrants were not allowed to be witnesses in, in legal trials. And also, they could not uh, receive bail if they were arrested. So were they, the Chinese really the only ones that had to carry identity papers in this country? So our immigration laws, what we know today, began with Chinese Americans. There weren't many immigration laws on the books before these exclusionary acts. And in the Fang Yu Ting case in 1893, um, the court upheld the validity of this provision. And they said that the Equal Protection Clause doesn't prevent a person from being deported, right, so long as they don't have their paperwork in order. So even if the Constitution protected the Yikwo laundromat's right to stay open, it did not protect their right to be deported if they didn't comply with these laws requiring these certifications. Can I add to that? Um, I think that the two um, immigration cases, um, Fang Yuting and the one that preceded it, Che Champing in 1889, those are land, really landmark cases that change the course, not only for Chinese immigrants, but for all immigrants, and they apply today. And in these cases, the court said that immigration is a matter of national security. Before this time, immigration was understood to be under the Commerce Clause. To justify Chinese exclusion and to justify the denial of equal protection, they said immigration was a matter of national security, therefore is outside the Constitution it's in the same basket of matters that Congress regulates, like declaring war, making treaties, having uh, diplomatic relations with foreign countries. So in matters of entry and removal, aliens have no rights under the Constitution. None. And this is uh, what our current president has used, the so-called plenary power or executive power over immigration to justify the executive orders that were issued when he took office. So this idea that immigration is a matter of national security and therefore that aliens do not have rights in matters of entry and removal, that comes from the Chinese exclusion cases, but it has undergirded our entire history of immigration law since that time. You made the point, both of you, that uh, anti-Chinese laws continued and anti-Chinese uh, discrimination continued for about 60 more years in the United States. In 1943, Congress passed the Magnuson Act, uh, which allowed limited Chinese immigration, but still only 105 visas, 105 to Chinese immigrants. Uh, what progress did the Magnuson Act make for Chinese? Well, the Magnuson Act, um, I think, has to be understood as a World War II era act. Um, China was a war ally of the United States. 
Japan was making a lot of hay over the fact that the Chinese were excluded from the United States, and they said, what kind of ally is that that excludes your people? So uh, Chinese exclusion was repealed uh, as a war measure and, um, and to kind of squelch that uh, negative propaganda coming out of Japan. But uh, it really wasn't to help the Chinese people to immigrate because they imposed a quota of 105 a year. And that quota applied not just to people in China, but to all Ch Chinese people around the world. So if you were a Chinese in Hong Kong, a British territory, or a Chinese person in Cuba, or wherever, you were subject to that 105 quota. But it was important because it repealed the ban on naturalization, so Chinese who were in this country as lawful residents could now naturalize. And it also opened up the immigration of um, uh, of women, wives of Chinese who had not been able to come over to this country. So it was important in that respect. Twenty years later, Congress passed the Immigration and Nationality Act. Johnson signed it into law. What did it do? This was a significant law, and perhaps the most important aspect of this law was it eliminated the quota system, where people from certain countries could apply based on whether the country was desirable or not. Uh, this law said that now the issuance of immigrant visas cannot be discriminated on the basis of nationality. And to bring this to the present day, that's a core component in the challenge to President Trump's travel bans of whether this amounts to nationality-based discrimination in violation of the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act. We're going to look at both the legal and the historical legacy of this. Uh, you mentioned more than 150 citations in subsequent cases. You had a top five um, you've talked about, we're going to put those on screen, please. Regents of University of California v. Baki, which is going to be our final case in the series. Uh, Shoot versus Cole to defend affirmative action, uh, immigration, and integration rights. Shelby County versus Holder, that's Eric Holder, former Attorney General. Bamudian versus uh, Bush, which was the Guantanamo Bay case. And Lawrence versus Texas. You've talked about most of those. Give us a little preview about how you, the citation with Baki, which is our final case. Right. So Baki was a famous case from the 1970s that upheld, I'm sorry, that invalidated the University of California's uh, affirmative action policy. And in that case, the court said that a quota system, right, setting aside a certain number of seats for uh, racial minorities was unconstitutional. But the court cited Yikwo for the idea that the guarantees of equal protection are, quote, universal in their application to all persons without regard to differences of race. So here you have Yikwo being cited against the affirmative action policy. The idea that using race in a positive fashion was also unconstitutional. Uh, this is a very controversial idea. Um, today, Justice Harlan in the Plessy case said that our Constitution is colorblind. Not everyone today likes that quote because a lot of people want the Constitution to consider color for positive purposes such as affirmative action. So there's a distinct legacy here of when can you use race for in a positive fashion and when can use race for a negative fashion. And that's still something that's vigorously contested today. So we're going to have uh, uh, ourselves come full circle, May I? This is a 14th Amendment case, particularly um, emphasizing the uh, provision that says, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Put a historical summation for us. What was what is the importance of the Yikwo case to American society over time? It means that we can't discriminate against immigrants. 
we can't withhold from them rights that we uh, give citizens. I mean, the two main rights that citizens have that immigrants do not have are the right to be territorial present, meaning you can't be thrown out of the country, and the right to vote. And other than that, all people in this country have the same rights. And I think that's really important because we are a really diverse country. We have a large immigrant population. It's not as big as some people think. It's about 13% of our population. Um, but I think it's really important that we have a society that treats everybody equally. Historical importance of the case. The key aspect of Yikwo is it teaches a lesson for the courts that even if a facially neutral law exists, that the law on its face doesn't mention race or religion, that courts are empowered to look behind the face of that statute to find an improper motivation. And that's something the court has done quite often in the last several decades. Thank you, Josh Blackman. Thank you, May Nye, for helping us understand this 1886 case, Yik Wo. And th special thanks to our friends at the National Constitution Center who helped us with the selection of the cases for this entire series. Thanks for being with us. We have uh, 12 cases altogether, and we hope you'll be with us for more of this journey as we learn about significant Supreme Court cases and their impact on our society.